Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Choose Inclusion. Uh, we're continuing our Black Voices Matter series, and I'm here, as usual, with my co-host, Mike and Yubi. Hey, guys. Hey, everybody. Good morning. So we have a special guest today. Uh, Reagan Bird, um, I actually met through kind of the, the, the Women of Color Networks of Denver, and uh, I was impressed with her right away. Um, she's the founder of Reagan Bird Consulting. And what makes Reagan unique is that she does anti-oppression consulting. Um, I'm gonna let her describe exactly what that is but um, it's, it's such a needed space and uh, place to be. And I'm so glad that she's doing this. But uh, at first I wanna welcome Reagan and ask the question that we ask of all our guests, just um, how are you doing right now? Hi Nina, thank you so much for having me on today. And um, I am doing mostly well, um, definitely it's ups and downs, um, but I'm very fortunate um to i get to express my emotions and my interests and my passions and my reflections i get to put all of that into my work um so i have an outlet i feel like for a lot of um just processing that a lot of folks are doing and while other folks um you know have to put that away when they're going to work or have to put it away to deal with like family concerns or get more practical tasks done um you know i get to kind of spend the day in my head um as I'm doing trainings and consultation, or I get to, um, you know, offer just discussion sessions like, hey, come talk with me about this. And I have an audience of folks who are, who are, um, who want to engage with me in that sort of work. So um, I feel fortunate in that way. Um, and yes, yeah, definitely ups and downs, but doing good today. So what is uh, anti-oppression consulting? So I would say um, anti-oppression is basically um, a lens on which to analyze the world is one way that I put that. And it's analyzing um, power and how power has been um, kind of used and concentrated around identity. Um, so there are multiple oppressive systems that have operated globally. Um, you have racism, you have sexism, you have um, heterosexism and homophobia, you have ableism, ageism, um, et cetera. Most of these systems serve kind of what an ultimate oppressive system, which one might call classism, um, or this kind of this uh, gathering, attempting to gather resources and retain resources only for yourself or your group uh, to the detriment of others, uh, to your community and things like that. Um, so anti-oppression is really about why have so many systems and and community structures all across the go all across the globe um, been dehumanizing. Why have so many of them attempted to extract resources from a community rather than enrich the entire community? Um, so I to me it's a very powerful way to look at human harm, human suffering, um, and why that has been so commonly caused in a lot of our societies. Um, so that's kind of what I think of as anti-oppression as a whole. And then um, my anti-oppression consulting business is, um, is I do diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting through an anti-oppression lens. So my, my core theory of anti-oppression and how I present that work, um, um, it's designed to say, 
the reason why diversity, equity, inclusion is important is not because it makes you more money, is not because it's a it's a business trend, it's because it's it actually is about stopping harm that's coming to marginalized people. So I want to teach diversity, equity, inclusion through an anti-oppression lens so that folks really understand the root values of why we're doing this work. Yeah, I, I think that's that's huge. And I think that that point of getting to the root cause and the root values of all this to me is what's important. And I think that's that's the education and the knowledge that people are missing, mm -hmm. you know, like about what's going on. So I, I love that lens because it's not performative, right? It's not about a press release, mm -hmm. you know, how, I mean, how do you respond to people who, you know, aren't following up those performative actions with actual action? Um, I think those folks have to examine, um, examine their motivations and also they have to learn how to do allyship well. So one thing I tell folks is that is that allyship is a skill that you are building. Um, it's something that you have to learn to do. There's a lot to understand about um, how do I go about being anti-racist? How do I go about dismantling um, oppressive systems? Um, that is not like, it's actually naive to think, oh, I just know how to do that. I'm going to just, well, we need to protest and it's about me having the right opinions and, and no, I treat everyone the same and I care about people. So I'm just going to show up in the world in an anti-racist way. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. Um, this is, you have to learn how to see where all of this is happening. So that's a whole skill set you have to build. You have to learn how to um, basically strategic plan and, and create actionable goals on how you are going to dismantle these systems. You have to learn how to build up new systems, new ways of doing things so that you're not repeating oppressive patterns and ways of setting up things. It's a lot of work. And so some folks are performative um, out of ignorance, I would say, and some folks are performative out of their motivation is really just to be seen a certain way or to be understood a certain way and not to actually, again, reduce harm, not to actually end suffering, not to actually contribute to their communities. And they need to do examination on that. Like, um, if all you care about is how you are perceived, um, then that's a problem. You're not really doing allyship. And if you're not aware that that's what you're doing, um, there are skills to help you examine what's going on internally with yourself there, but you have to sit back and question, why am I doing the things that I'm doing? I'm a, a oh, go ahead, Mike. sorry, Nina. Um, I, so I, I, I love what you're saying. I, um, I'd love to get your take on, uh, we talked about this just prior to going on, on air. So how do you feel like what's going on now? um can really be sustained and i love what you're saying about creating allyship because i i actually feel like that's that that, that seems to be it, they may not be calling it by that name but it almost seems like that's what's happening um at this point in time based on you know george floyd and rihanna and, and all the other atrocities um I, I feel like more of that kind of conversation is 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 uh being verbalized. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> More of that conversation in terms of allyship and how to take um, like substantive action. Yes. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. Um, 
Yeah, I think I I don't know yet is my kind of actual answer because um I am I'm really I'm worried that we are on the cusp of a new way to communicate with each other, new ways to organize with each other in terms of technology and stuff like that. Um but I'm worried that the energy around this is not going to be sustained. And what I mean by that is, um, I, I, I was saying this before we started the podcast as well, that um, um, we've been here before. We've been here before multiple times. We've been here in the 1960s. There, was, there were multiple incidents of international outrage at, at anti-Black racism in the United States. There were people getting shocked at, about photographs of police uh, uh, kneeling on women's necks. I use a photograph um, in one of my trainings, and there's one used in the um, I Am Not Your Negro, that documentary about James Baldwin. Um, you watch this stuff from the past, and you're just like, exactly the same outrage, exactly the same shock has happened. Like, I didn't know it was this bad, and I didn't understand this. And basically, what's frustrating is that Black people have never stopped, you know, in this country talking about anti-Black racism, talking about our lived experiences, and it only seems to be when we are suffering and bleeding and dying in the streets, in public, and it being documented, are, are other folks like, oh, wow, um, I guess this is serious. And then there is a period of outrage, there's a period of, of, of action, there's a, there's a burst of energy, and then it kind of fades away. And I'm worried about that happening now because of, with the Me Too movement, the Me Too movement is kind of, it is still here, but it has not turned into organizing yet. Hollywood has not made a lot of um, a lot of um, uh, impactful changes in terms of the way sexism shows up in the industry. N neither has most have most organizations or businesses. And it's almost like we can only focus on one thing at once. Like we need to be focused on racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and a couple of different really major things all at once. And, and it's almost like we are being made to compete to say, well, we're going to focus on racism now, can't focus on some other things. So it's really, really complicated. Um, and I guess I'll end my point by saying, um, I hope that something has changed and something is different. I'm waiting until after the election, first of all, because either way that goes, it's going to be, there's going to be a, some decisions that need to be made immediately. Um, and but I'm if Donald Trump, in fact, loses the election, um, I am also concerned that people will think that that is some kind of victory towards systemic change. And it's really not. The systemic change is going to come after we fix all the things he's done, after we reorganize states and, and, and national governments to solve multiple crises, to solve the pandemic, to solve, um, or at least how it's showing up in the United States, to solve um, to solve racism, to fix things structurally. We have a lot of work to do. And I don't want there to be this, okay, we did it, you know, this is over, we won the election and we're gonna take a sigh of relief. I think folks are tired, I think folks are stressed and that has some risks in terms of the work being sustainable. I am very conscientious of that. And I'm trying to basically do my due diligence to make sure that um, folks understand this is long-term strategic planning work. This is not, you know, a one-off, burst of energy and then we're kind of done. That's that's a great point. One of our, our guests earlier, Keisha Washington, um, she kind of made the analogy that, you know, the work that we're doing is a marathon 
not a sprint. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, what we have right now is just a lot more people have joined in the race. The question is, is how many of them are going to stay in it? Or are they just going to drop off after the next mile? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, one of the questions I have is like, so you have a, a, a solid understanding of the historical context of everything that we've seen before. We've seen this, you know, kind of short-term action in the past that's faded away quickly. What's different about this time? Or is there anything different about what's happening this time around versus in the past? I, um, I'm certainly not the only person that has said this. And it's, um, it's been a take that I've heard from multiple um, intellectuals and, and, and public figures that I respect um, as well. But I definitely think the pandemic put us in a different mindset. Um, um, not only has the presidency of Donald Trump revealed so many flaws and structural, um, you know, uh, um, checks and balances, like issues that we have with those things structurally in terms of how our government works, um, but then um, the pandemic revealed, it reminded all of us, yeah, you are, our quote unquote economic stability is for the most part an illusion. Most people, even if they are somewhat stable, are two checks are two paychecks away from not being stable. We had massive unemployment. Everyone's everyone's health insurance has been tied to employment. Um, so um, without uh, without Obamacare, which now the Trump administration is trying to remove, so a bunch of people lost their health care in the middle of a pandemic. A bunch of folks didn't have rent, and now we have a, a homelessness crisis that is still pending because a bunch of these folks are still talking about they intend to evict. And all we have is a bunch of evictions that are on hold. None of this structurally makes any sense. None of this is, none of this speaks of a society that is doing well, that is taking care of its citizens. Um, it's always been there. We've been talking about it for a long time. The conversation just in Denver about homelessness and talking on and on about it being a public health crisis. And this is not, um, this is not a humanizing way to treat people. It doesn't make sense in every in every possible way you can think of it doesn't make sense socially doesn't make sense economically doesn't make sense in terms of of human care and harm reduction doesn't make sense any way you look at it the, the way in which we allow people to simply suffer for the economy and so i think the pandemic laid that bare i think the pandemic revealed or um, revealed that to some people reminded people where they actually are um and basically said um this this is not working. Our government's not working. Our society is not working. Uh, our economy is not working. The U.S. is not working. That is the headline of the century. The U.S. is not working. And we kind of have never been working. It's kind of always been an illusion. Um, I asked people, I asked people to think about when exactly did we become a democracy? Was that when we first formed and only 10 to 20 percent of the population could vote because you had to be a white male property owner? Was it when women got the right to vote in the 1920s and that was only some women? Was it when black people got guaranteed our right to vote and had it actually protected in 1965? We've never been a democracy. We've never had our stuff together. So we need to start sitting with what we actually are, our real history. There's a lot of great stuff too. There's a lot of resilience. There's a lot of um, conversations about justice and equity. The US is a country that was founded on a conversation about justice. That is a part of our legacy too. It's, it's powerful as a part of our legacy. The Declaration of Independence as a part of our legacy is powerful. Um, so we have a lot of good to build off on, 
but I'm sick of this avoidance of our history and what we really are and have been. We need, this is the time to now be like, yeah, actually we're not doing so great. America is not number one, hasn't been for a long time. We have some work to do to fix this country, to make it what it what we aspirationally have always claimed it's been. Let's make America actually America. Let's actually make it, quote unquote, the shining city on the hill, um, to quote um, a Republican who had aspirational visions. Um, let's actually do that um, instead of all of the oppression and all of the harm and all of the stuff that we've always actually had in this country. I mean that <laughs> everything. Bravo. Like I, I, I mean, how do you, how do you, yeah. How do you respond to that? Wow. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, it, and it, it's, um, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly what it's going to take. I hundred percent agree. Like it's it's, and so let me ask you this because you said something that was interesting and which I totally totally agree with, which is that um, we have to take on all of these movements at the same time do mm -hmm. you think do you think that shifting the conversation now to include the other marginalized groups do you think do you think it's time to do that and to start bridging the gap between um lgbtq native american hispanic asian you know is it time to start bridging the gap and bringing these movements together or do you fear that that will take away from the the one marginalized group, the black community, where you know the, if we can make change there, we can make change for everybody? Um, I think you know. it's a yes. I understand what you're saying. Um, I think it's a yes and kind of answer where um, we need to be intersectional and also focused on some major systems of oppression one of which is racism and and the floor of racism is kind of anti-black racism if that makes sense there's a hierarchy of race white supremacy and whiteness is at the top and then the floor of racism in the united states is anti-black racism so so all all good anti-racist work should be prepared to be let's bring an anti-black racist lens to this or understand how this shows up even within communities of color things like that um so we need to be racism i would say patriarchy and sexism because i agree that we are not talking enough about that i i i see feel that understand that um and see the way it shows up in other kinds of organizing where no one really wants to sit with this is a foundational oppressive system as well um and then just really in terms of of um the levels of violence against indigenous communities and um and trans and gender non-conforming communities and kind of the LGBTIQA community as a whole, um, that is a that is again a really uh, uh, you know folks are dying in in these communities. That's why we need to be attentive to I would say those four especially right now. Um, and we also need to be intersectional in terms of um, if you like, for instance, if you're not if you're not an intersectional feminist right now, if you're not bringing an intersectional lens to your analysis of of um sexism or your analysis of of um of um homophobia and and the ways like queer folks of color have been especially targeted um you 
you know, you don't understand the totality of what's happening and, and what's impacting communities. You don't understand the folks who are most directly um, impacted by a lot of these systems. So it's no longer, I guess what I want to say is it's no longer acceptable to not be able to use an intersectional lens. You need to be able to put that hat on when, um, um, when looking at who are, who is really being harmed, who are the constituencies who are most at risk, and are we really being community-wide, as the Chinook Fund talks about, in, in the groups we're trying to impact? So if we're talking about Black Lives Matter, that also means Black queer folks. That also means Black trans women. So I'm so happy that we had you know, a huge march all across the country. There were several marches marching for Black trans women specifically. That, that is what bringing an intersectional lens to this it means. Within these four major systems we need to look at, racism, sexism, um, heterosexism and homophobia, um, and then indigenous communities, um, which is intersectional analysis too. Um, looking at those kind of major things, we can be intersectional within those um, to say, what are the what are the things we need to be attentive of? Who's getting the brunt of this kind of harm? Um, so I think I think we kind of have to be sophisticated in our in our approach. Um, part of the problem I also think has happened with diversity, equity, inclusion, and other things is we went to this very simplistic lens on what is happening. Um, and, um, and I'm trying to complicate things. I'm just like, uh, like, once you understand the complication of something, then you can back it out and make it simple and narrow it down and talk about a simple pattern or something. But starting simple when something is really deeply complex, I think we did ourselves a disservice. Um, in terms of, you know, anti-oppression trainings, activism, um, we try to make the narratives a bit too simple. Like this is just about treating people nicely. This is about everyone, um, everyone has value. This is about let's all share and be nice. And no, it's about a lot more than that. <laughs> well, I, I actually appreciate you saying that. And I, one of my thoughts with, you know, kind of today's environment is, I know you're you're uh, you you've made the comment that you know businesses are looking at it from um, you know can they make more money and and yet at the end of the day the only way for movements to keep sustained effort is through resources organizations buying in and actually spending money on this and I'm like I'm really encouraged to see you know Google and Netflix and the biggest companies out there are saying, yes, we are committing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars for, um, you know, for black owned businesses, for uh, Black Lives Matters. Like, I, I, I think that's a huge part of this narrative to keep it sustained. Well, also, Facebook just lost $7 billion because of the boycotts. That's like huge. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, I'm really, um, Facebook really needs to get, Facebook needs to be regulated first and foremost, and then they need to fix their own, uh, a lot of internal stuff, <laughs> um, and, and how they externally are, are running their platform. And yeah, but it's, Facebook is, is, is not a, a good actor in terms of public information right now. Absolutely. And I um, think like, you know, okay. go ahead, go ahead, Reagan. Oh, I was, I was going to, um, well, I'm curious about that, but I was going to respond to um, the importance of kind of money in the movement, um, which I believe Mike was talking about, uh, but I wanted to hear your, your thought real quick. No, no, no. I want to hear your thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yeah, I'm just, um, I'm just curious about how this, how this is landing for y'all in terms of how it's showing up. Um, but the, 
I do um, resource distribution is is very important. Um, I want to make sure that when we say I'm committing a million dollars to a black owned business, like, um, do you know that like the Black Lives Matter Foundation, quote unquote, which is not connected to the real Black Lives Matter movement at all, they got like a million dollars or and people had to get or four million dollars got committed to them or something and then companies had to back out and move money away to say oh yeah sorry we didn't know that that wasn't the real thing so i want to make sure money is actually going to like black owned and run organizations um what counts is that what is their definition to that um how are we keeping um and are they're committing to money is there a way that we can actually know um where the decisions about how to distribute that are going and then um are black people directing where that money's going so it's one thing to commit it if facebook's saying we still get to decide not facebook i mean other organizations if they say we get to decide um where it goes like that's what an anti-oppression analysis is is to say really you should be handing over the money to the community so they can decide where it goes and what is the most important to go to but yeah commit the money and give it to directly affected community-led kind of organizations and businesses that are contributing well. Um, so I want that to be a part of the conversation too. Um, but redistribution of resources and, and providing resources for the labor that it takes to do this work is absolutely critical. And it doesn't just have to be money. It can be space, lending space for meetings or time, um, especially uh, you know at, at the point which after COVID, there's gonna be more meeting space needed. Um, um, uh, cooking food for th for meetings, um, 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 donating individually to um, to local grassroots organizations yourself, or to individual um, um, or to folks running for office, or individuals um, who are activists doing the work. All of that contributes to folks being able to do the to do this labor in a sustained way. And I want to make sure that when we say money is going to the work, what do we mean by that? Let's make sure it's being directed. Um, by the community itself. And it's not just organizations saying, we are gonna give money to what we think makes us look better and we think is not too radical or supports our narrative. Um, really, they, they don't even need to be that involved in the decision-making. Say, we commit a million dollars, here you go. We're gonna give it to this, this organization that is, or maybe in a foundation or something that is um, a community-led foundation that can distribute the money um, or in a way where the community has power to dictate where that money goes, where it's most needed, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I think that, yeah, there's this knee-jerk reaction to just throw money at the problem. But if you're not doing your due diligence to find out exactly who you're giving that money to, then your money's not going to make it the impact that you want it to make. So yeah. I, I really appreciate you kind of laying that out um, for everyone to hear and really think about what they're putting their money towards. Because I know that that's the reaction a lot of people and, and businesses too are, are, are thinking about. So let's hold them accountable to do their due diligence and make sure it's going towards communities and community leaders that are truly focused on the Black community and Black leaders in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Reagan, uh, I was wondering if you just had any final uh, parting thoughts for us before we, we wrap up, something that you want to make sure everyone in our, in our audience hears um, from your perspective. 
Um, I just, I think we as a society have to start setting some, some, some baselines um, is, is the word that I always use to describe it, like some core agreements about how we're going to conduct ourselves and do our work. Um, this notion that, that greed is a, a un, unchecked, untapped greed is good, that every person can be out for themselves, no matter how much harm they do to other people, that it's about like, that you matter much more than other people, not even that you matter more, that you matter much more, like um, that you, you know, that, that basically that it's kind of like people who just like say things like it's a dog eat dog world and really live their lives in that way and really mean it. Um, how we've allowed businesses and for-profit capitalism to conduct itself, to say, yeah, like you're, you don't have to care about harm to the community that your business is housed in. Um, we are only even going to legally require you. All you have to think about is shareholder profit. All you need to think about is, is um, maximizing the benefits to your business. And that can mean harming employees, harming your community, harming the environment. Um, the United States specifically has been stuck in that thinking for a long time. And so I feel like we have to create a whole new social contract and construct for how we, you know, what we say is allowed. We need to have a harm reductionist perspective. We need to have a justice perspective um, on those things need to be foundations upon which all of our institutions and ways of operating are built. And if that scares you or you're like, that sounds like some totalitarian, one global government, blah, blah, blah. No, that's what harm reduction is, is I do not want any system that limits people's freedom, that, that limits justice, that causes harm. So if you're concerned about something, I'm saying, tell me your concerns and let's co-create something together. I, um, that meets both of our needs. That does the best we can do. It may not be perfect, but we can get 95% of good systems working in ways that are beneficial for everyone. I believe we can do it. It's been done before. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, but it's time to actually do this work. All of the United States, so I'm saying this to all of the United States, we have to actually do this work. And it sounds big, but we will break it up into bite-sized pieces. And that's what strategic planning is. So yes. <laughs> awesome, I love it, I love it. And Reagan, thank you so much for bringing your passion today, your vulnerability trusting us um, with, you know, get, giving you the space to do this. Um, it's been amazing having you as a guest and uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, I appreciate it. Yes, thank, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, and thank you to all our listeners as well. Um, as usual, uh, you can uh, listen to this episode on our website, chooseinclusion.com. We also put it up on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, so thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care, Take care. everybody.